This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. As voters in Mount Pleasant head to the polls to pick their next village president, one candidate for the job is suing the other for defamation. Challenger Kelly Gallagher filed suit yesterday against incumbent Dave DeGroote in Racine County Circuit Court, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. She said DeGroote made misleading claims during a board meeting and on social media tying her to a defunct business. DeGroote repeatedly suggested that Gallagher would see a windfall from the sale of the company Senior Campus at Campbell Woods LLC, which went into foreclosure after missing several loan payments. Gallagher said she was gifted a single share in the company and was never involved in its operation. The outcome of the village president election could have a major impact on the future of the sprawling Foxconn development in Mount Pleasant. Gallagher has been a vocal critic of that project. If Dane County has felt a bit more crowded lately, that's because it is. The county grew by 5,600 new residents since 2020, according to new numbers from the U.S. Census Bureau. That's an increase of about 1% and brings the total population to 568,203, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Dane County was the fastest growing part of the state over that period by a long shot. And it continues the trend of rapid growth that Madison and surrounding areas have seen for the past decade. Waukesha County was the second fastest growing area since 2020, adding about 3,000 residents, while Milwaukee County was at the bottom of the list, seeing a loss of 20,000 people. The Dane County Sheriff's Office is looking into complaints that a local solar panel company was paid for hundreds of thousands of dollars of work that it never finished, NBC 15 reports. Deputies have already responded to five citizen complaints, alleging they contracted Sun Badger Solar to install solar panels, but the company has not completed those projects. A total of $165,000 in losses have been reported. Officials say Dane County residents can file complaints by contracting the Sheriff's Department for non- Sheriff Department's non-emergency number or by reaching out to the State Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection. A luxury student housing developer is looking to grow its footprint in downtown Madison with two new building projects, the Capital Times reports. Chicago-based Core Spaces developer is proposing two student housing developments across from each other along West Johnson Street near the intersection of North Bassett Street. The projects would include more than 200 units each and rise as high as 12 stories. Several existing residential structures would be raised. If the city approves both projects, core spaces will have constructed five large student housing buildings within a matter of a few blocks. They have already developed the James and the Hub and are currently constructing Olive Madison on State Street. A new private Christian high school is set to open in Verona in the fall of 2024. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Impact Christian Schools plans to take over a banquet space at the Verona Athletic Center and convert it into classrooms. Impact Christian currently operates several private schools in the Madison area, serving students in grades 3K to 12. The organization plans to see about 10 to 20 students enrolled at the new school at the start, but they say it will eventually have capacity for 260. That number initially raised concerns about traffic and zoning for Verona City Council members, but after initially rejecting the school's application, they approved the project last month. Madison middle schoolers will soon see changes in the classroom when it comes to improving their reading skills. The Madison School Board is poised to approve the purchase of a new literacy curriculum for grades 6 through 8 later this month, the Capital Times reports. 
School board members and district staff met yesterday to discuss the two curriculum options still up for consideration. Madison Metropolitan School District Superintendent Carlton Jenkins is expected to make a recommendation on one of the options before the board votes on April 24th. The move comes a year after the district purchased new curricula for elementary school students. The new curriculum is part of an ongoing shift in the way children are taught to read, with new methods focusing more on phonics than the, quote, balanced literacy, unquote, approach the district has used in recent past. And now on to today's top stories. At the end of early voting this past weekend, nearly 19% of Madison's registered voters had already cast their ballots in the nonpartisan spring election. Today, tens of thousands of Madisonians went to their polling places to cast their ballots on Election Day. WORT News Team Abigail Levins, Jessica Lindahl, and Nate Wegehout made their way across the city today to talk with a few of those voters. On the ballot today is the race for the Supreme Court Justice. Also in the ballot in Madison are many different local races, mayor, school board, and alder, and that's not even counting the state, county, and local referendums. Other towns across Wisconsin have local races too. According to Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald, there are over 200 different types of ballots just in Dane County to account for all the different local elections. Polls open today at 7 a.m., and as of 11 a.m., almost 40,000 voters had cast their ballots, and about 14,000 of those were absentee, according to the Madison City Clerk. We traveled through the city today to ask voters why they're voting today. First, I went to the Majestic Theater by the Capitol and spoke with Sam Gordon. Yeah, could you start by telling me your name? Uh, Sam Gordon. Okay, Sam Gordon. Uh, what what made you come out here to vote today? Uh really important issues on the ballot and we got to address and obviously Wisconsin's not a state where you can just count on things happening without voting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And why should other people vote? Um, protect our rights and, and make sure that you're doing your civic duty. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Then I headed to the Madison Senior Center and Grace Parr talked to me about why voting is important to her. Tell me your name. Grace Parr. Nice to meet you, Grace. Nice to meet you. What brings you here today? Um, yeah, I just feel like voting is something that everyone should do if they are able to, so that's why I'm here today. Absolutely. And why should everyone vote? It's part of their right as a citizen and to actually voice an opinion. Absolutely. And why do you think this election in particular is important to you? Um, probably for the women's rights, for their autonomy over their body, I think that's very important. And I think using people's voices to, to, to do the polls, that's what's important, yeah. Finally, I spoke with Joseph Holkinson at Capitol Lakes. What your name is? Hi, I'm Joseph Holkinson. Nice to meet you, Joseph. What brought you here today? Um, I just wanted to vote. Uh, nothing particular. Yeah, why Why did you want to vote? Why is it important for other people too? Um, well, particular in this vote, uh, abortion is on the ballot and protecting that, and I think that's very important, especially with Roe v. Wade, uh, you know, recently, and all the stuff happening across the country, which is not very good. Mm-hmm, yeah. Absolutely, and why should everyone else come out to vote? Um, pretty much the same deal, and more to the point, like, we live here. You may as well get your voice heard, yeah. I started off by heading to the UW-Madison campus, visiting the polls at Memorial Union and Gordon Steining Center to ask students about their voting experiences. At Memorial Union, voters explained the issues on the ballot that brought them out to vote today. Natalie Shikar, um, I'm a sophomore here at UW-Madison studying 
uh, strategic communications. Yeah, I thought the voting experience went really smoothly. Um, it was really interesting um, seeing other students come out and vote, and it was really inspiring just to know that students here at UW-Madison um, want to vote and want to make changes in our county and our city. I'm Twishy Krishna Kumar. I'm a freshman who's out of state studying at UW-Madison right now. Um, I came out to vote because I know like Wisconsin's a red state or like our swing state usually and coming from a very blue state I wanted to make sure like abortion rights and equality and anything that I stand for is still heard even if I'm out of state. And um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I think it's just like really important to vote especially with the younger generation because it's our future right so like it's important that we start voting now so that we see the future that we want. This is Jessica reporting from Gordon's Dining Center asking voters how their experiences were today. Hi, um, I'm Sindhu Nandipati and I'm a freshman and um, yeah, I'm a political science major. And why did you come to vote today? Um, I feel like it's important to exercise our vote, um, um, to like the ability to vote because not a lot of people have that and you get to have a say in like the government and like how they may run things, and I feel like that's important. There are both plants and voters galore here at the Oberk Botanical Gardens on the east side of Madison, where uh, as of around 12.30 today, over 900 voters have already made their way and cast their ballots here. Let's go in and see if we can talk with a couple of them. My name is Jan Reek. And why are you out here today? Well, I think voting is really important. It's our chance to express our opinions about what we think should happen and what's important, so why wouldn't I vote? Do you, do you see this election as, as important? Oh, super important, yeah. And why is that? Well, of course, the state Supreme Court race is very important, but I also think the local races are very important, and I think the referendum questions for Dane County are particularly good, and it's just, uh, it's just a really important time to weigh in and be, my, be a good citizen and, and vote. And what's your name? My name is John. And why are you here today, John? To vote for our rights. Yeah, basically, yeah, seeing too much weird Republican stuff going on. And uh, I always I always vote against it. Do you, do you see this election as important? Yes, very important. Uh, and why? Um, politicization of judges, I think, is a horrible thing. But, you know, so be it. I'll, I'll always vote my politics. Well, it's not just kids roaming the halls here at Whitehorse Middle School. Voters are coming in pretty steady here. Let's uh, try and talk with a couple of them and see what they have to say. And uh, what's your name? Uh, Corey Peterson. And uh, Corey, uh, why are you here? Here to vote for Janet and for the abortion same-sex marriage referendum. Do you see this election as important? Oh, absolutely. And why is that? Um, I mean, there's just a lot at stake here with our Supreme Court that, um, you know, we have to make our vote and make our voices heard here. And uh, what's your name? Uh, Todd Hayes. And uh, Todd, why are you here today? I'm voting for the uh, election. And do you see this election as uh, important? Uh, yeah, I think it's clearly important. Uh, the vote for Supreme Court will determine the swing vote for, for the... Supreme Court, so uh, that's clearly going to have a large impact on Wisconsin. And uh, what's your name? Tori Dexter. 
And Tori, why are you here today? I'm voting for lots of things, but uh, yeah, very excited to vote for the Supreme Court election. Do you see this election as important? Extremely, yeah. And why is that? Uh, the judges hold really long terms, and they have ultimate say over a lot of things that are going on in our state. And I see it as a first step to change some things that I don't think have been going in the right direction. Anything else you want people to know? No, I just hope a lot of people come out and vote today. Polls close at 8 p.m. tonight. If you are in line by 8, you can still vote, so be sure to stay in line. All voters will need some form of photo ID. If you still need to register, you can do that at your polling place, but be sure to bring an acceptable proof of residence, like a utility bill. Tonight's results will be unofficial and will be certified by election officials in the next few weeks. For up-to-date election information this evening, follow us on Twitter at WORT News. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. I'm Abigail Levins. And I'm Jessica Lindahl. While most of the races across the state are technically part nonpartisan, one race in southeastern Wisconsin is partisan and could give Republicans in the state Senate a two-thirds majority. To learn more about this race, WORT producer Nate Wuggiehout spoke with WIS Politics editor J.R. Ross earlier today. Across the state, folks are casting their ballots for a bevy of nonpartisan races. Well, at least most of those races are nonpartisan. There is one partisan race this spring in a special election in the 8th Senate District, north of Milwaukee. That seat was held by Republican Senator Alberta Darling, who late last year announced her retirement. And now there are two candidates running for the seat, and that race could have major implications on the future of the state Senate. To help break all this down, I'm joined now by J.R. Ross, editor at WIS Politics. JR, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, anytime. Now, just to start, JR, let's talk a little bit about the 8th Senate District there. Tell me a little bit about this area and how they tend to vote politically. Well, this, this is a Republican seat in a normal year, normal turnout, normal environment. Um, it should be like a 54% Republican seat. Now, we're not normal, right? This is an April electorate versus a November one. Uh, we have a Supreme Court race that's shattered records for national national for spending the top of the tickets kind of overshadowed this. So, but if you go back and look at the district, just like in November, for example, of 2022, Ron Johnson won 54.2 percent there. So that's a pretty good as a almost a 50-50 race. Mandela Barnes that gives you a good guide of how that he performs. Now, while Johnson did that, Tim Michaels got 51.5 percent. Remember, Michaels lost by 3.4 points. To Tony Evers, and the perception was in that race was that Michaels had some flaws in a district like this when it came to abortion and college-educated suburban women. This is a perfect district that, if abortion is really driving the narrative, you might see a not normal turnout today. And now, like I said, there are two candidates running for this seat that was uh, uh, vacated by Republican Senator Alberta Darling. Uh, tell me about these two candidates, Dan Canodal and Jody Habish Sinikin. So Canodal uh, has been in the legislature since he's elected the first time 2008 uh, in the Assembly. His district has been redrawn several times since then. From what he's told me, he's covered like half of the Senate district or so over the course of the years between the various versions of his Assembly district. Longtime member of the legislature. What's been interesting is he was perceived to be the moderate Democrat in the primary when he was running against Janelle Branchon. Branchon is kind of known in the Capitol for pushing conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. She was chair of the campaign elections committee until Robin Voss, I'm a speaker, 
stripped her of that assignment. I mean, she went full on, you know, 2020 and all that kind of good stuff. So Democrats thought if she got through that she would, they'd have a better chance to win because she would have these, this baggage, you know, be associated with Trump. Uh, Canodal beat her. He is not a moderate. He's had a pretty conservative record. He also, for example, signed on a letter in 2020 urging, I believe, Mike Pence not to certify the results or something like that as part of that entire kind of effort. So he's not, you know, a moderate, but compared to Branchen, he's considered one. So the establishment Republicans got behind him in the primary and really pushed him through. Jody Habish-Sinekin, first-time candidate for state senate, I believe, um, environmental attorney, husband owns, uh, family owns a textile company uh, in southeastern Wisconsin. So kind of coming from the private sector, a little bit of an environmental background, raised good money. And believe it or not, there's been $2 million spent on this race already, according to the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. You know, but what's fascinating is that money's been spent, it's been overshadowed by what's gone in the state Supreme Court race. So, yes, this is a fairly healthy race for Senate in terms of spending, but it's almost been like forgotten about because of having state Supreme Court and what's at stake there. And now if Knodel, like you said, the Republican in this race were to win today, that would give the state GOP a two thirds majority in the state Senate there. What, w- what would that mean for the Senate? Well, uh, one with Governor Evers, a Democrat in the East Wing, uh, if he vetoes a bill, you'd have enough votes in the Senate to override him without Democratic support. Now, this assembly probably are too short, two votes shy of that mark. So they'd still need Democratic help to veto an Evers or override a veto, override an Evers veto in both houses. There's a lot of talk about the power to impeach officials with two thirds majority and a vote in the Senate. Um, now, that power hasn't been exercised in 125, 150 years, something like that, Wisconsin. And if you read the Legislative, legislative Council, which is a the nonpartisan kind of like legal arm of the legislature did a memo about this power noted that, you know, it says you could impeach a public official. It doesn't define who that could be. So you'd assume, for example, the governor would be something to be removed, but what about a judge? Cause it's a separate process to remove a judge in Wisconsin or state law. What about a district attorney? Like what's the extent of that power? So I don't, I don't know that, we have a clear picture of that. It would probably take a lawsuit to see the limits of that power. No, two, you'd have to get all 22 Republicans on board with doing that. And there's no guarantee that it all be the same spot. What's more, that two the majority could be short-lived, depending on what happens in the Supreme Court race, right? which has said that she believes the maps drawn and approved by the Supreme Court last year were quote-unquote rigged. So there's a thought that there would be a lawsuit to challenge those lines if she wins. So this district could look a lot different next fall if Janet Postage wins Supreme Court race. Now, these are a lot of ifs, right? If she wins, if a lawsuit is filed, you know, on down the line. But it's something to keep in mind about what's at stake here and what this race could mean if there is a two-thirds majority for Republicans after today in the state Senate. And now, so a lot of that power sort of does hinge on the assembly, which, like you said, the GOP does not have a two-thirds majority, and they're just a little bit shy. Is is there anything that the Senate can do uh, with a two-thirds majority without needing to go through the assembly first? Uh, that's a good question. I haven't explored that really. I mean, again, we're not really sure that the caucus would be unified on doing something dramatic. I mean, Dan Canodal, for example 
said he would be open to impeaching Janet Portasiewicz if he were elected to the state Senate. Now, I don't know that others in the caucus want to go there, right? Don't, don't forget, too, like, this is not a power that's been exercised frequently in Wisconsin. If you were to do this, you'd open up a whole other can of worms, right, about what's going on. You have duly elected people being removed by uh, the legislature. That that could really be a a difficult decision for them to make. So I'm not exactly sure they'd be trying to cut down 30 people the first week they had this power or something crazy like that. Plus, two to impeach somebody, you're supposed to do it for corruption or for a crime. How do you, what would the corruption be? What would the crime be? Remove that person, right? So there are lots of like things like that that I'm not sure we're really, uh, it's really a realistic thing. I think there's going to be a number of impeachments done in Wisconsin if Canoga wins. And JR, do you just have any final thoughts you'd like to share about, about this race here? Um, you know, it's, it's, again, just, it's been overshadowed by what's happening with the Supreme Court race. So talking to people, the, Thought that uh, feedback I've gotten is if Protosavage does pretty well today, you know, wins by a margin bigger than what Evers did, and I'm not predicting that she will, but if she were to get a bigger margin than Evers, that could help Jody Havasinikin win a Republican seat. Again, in a normal environment, normal turnout, this is not a competitive district. So it is an uphill battle for Democrats. It would be an upset if they won. But there's a path you can see to doing it if, 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 if things go well at top of the ticket. I've been talking with J.R. Ross, editor with WIS Politics, about this special election today in the 8th Senate District. Uh, J.R., thank you so much for talking with me. Anytime. time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Today's election for state Supreme Court has garnered national attention and has become the most expensive judicial race in the nation's history. For a rundown on what's at stake in that election, 8 o'clock Buzz host Andy Moore spoke with Jesse Apoyan, Capitol Bureau Chief with the Capitol Times. This Wisconsin State Supreme Court race. Give us a 10-second thumbnail on each candidate um, real quick. Sure. Uh, Janet Pernasewicz is the liberal candidate. She is a Milwaukee County uh, Circuit Court judge, and she's got she's had her ads on TV probably uh, enough at this point that everyone's heard about that. <laughs> um, and then uh, Daniel Kelly is the conservative candidate. He's a former state Supreme Court judge. He was appointed by Governor Scott Walker at the time and lost his bid for election or re-election, uh, but is running again. The, the eyes of the nation, so to speak, are, are the political eyes of the nation are, are watching Wisconsin uh, because of the, the, the forefrontness of, of the issue that will be abortion. You wrote a terrific in-depth, and I want to guess must have been a very challenging uh, story for the Cap Times a few days ago. You laid out the political and legal benchmarks of Wisconsin abortion law up to the present, uh, as well as, as, as the way the Supreme Court will likely face those legalities. Can you give us a condensed version to help the listeners understand how we got here and what's at stake? So Wisconsin has a criminal abortion ban. It was passed and enacted in 1849, and it it has really no exceptions except for the case of of saving the life of the mother. That was unenforceable under the the Roe v. Wade ruling. So, you know, for for most of (laughs) the last, you know, 50 years, in in the, the time since that, 
there have been a handful of laws you know, passed in the state restricting access to abortion. So it's, we, we were still among one of the more restrictive states uh, in, in that regard, but, but it was you know, legal and available. After the uh, Supreme Court's ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in, in Dobbs v. Jackson in June, that overturned Roe and effectively reenacted uh, Wisconsin's ban. So abortion has not been available in Wisconsin since then. There is a lawsuit challenging that ban. Um, it's currently in Dane County Court and inevitably will make its way to the, the state Supreme Court, which right now has a uh, four to three conservative tilt. This would be, if, if Janet Prosewitz were to win, it would restore liberal uh, a liberal majority to the court for the first time since 2008. Even with issues of this historic significance, there's a stubborn trend in Wisconsin Supreme Court races. Why is it that every single damn Supreme Court race in Wisconsin always comes down to the same two profiles? The strict judicial conservative versus the eye-popping threat of someone who will legislate from the bench every single time, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, I, th- I think that's just sort of the the weird thing about having a judicial election because it is ostensibly nonpartisan, but there's so much partisan influence that, you know, the candidates can't really campaign in the same way that you know, an outwardly partisan, you know, candidate for office does. And so you have a lot more, I guess, coded language kind of signifying what those positions are, you know, w- while trying to stay within the confines of you know, what's appropriate for uh, a judicial candidate. Speaking of these themes, as you've covered the race so closely, you develop a smell for odor um, in political journalism. Do you smell any malfeasance ads coming up here over the weekend? I think, you know, the, the ads, ads in Supreme Court races are always tricky because whether you're dealing with a, a lawyer who's represented clients or you're dealing with a judge who's handed down sentences, there's a lot of cases you can look at and you're going to find things that are not palatable uh, to people <laughs> and you can present them in a particular way. So, mm-hmm. y- you know, you're, you're always going to have those ads. And I think we're probably, yes, going to see more of them. It, it, it's, you know, I would say if you, if anyone watched the, the one debate that they had, it's, it's a pretty intensely personal and negative race, and and I would expect the ads to continue to trend in that direction. The, the tradition continues. Lots of hoo-ha is made over how many gazillion dollars are spent on these races, many of those gazillions coming from out of state. I don't, I don't mean to belittle this dynamic because it's part and parcel of a, of a political reality that we should be able to fix. But that said, talk about the money financing these races. Yeah, there's a lot of it. <laughs> it is, it is <laughs> the most <laughs> it's the most expensive judicial race, race in American history by far, by probably a factor of you know three times at this point. And it's it's coming in from all over the place. You're seeing um, on on the side benefiting <coughs> Kelly. Most of that is coming from Richard Uline, who funds a lot of of uh, right wing causes and efforts. And on the on the left, I, I believe it's still. I think the highest spending group is is Better Wisconsin Together, which is a you know a group that supports liberal causes. But you know it's it's coming in from everywhere. There is intense national interest in this race, not to mention intense statewide interest. <laughs> let's let's get local and move into the mayoral race. I I, I went long with Robbie Folks. Surprise! So we only have a couple of minutes left. So I'm sorry about that, Jesse. But if if uh, the mayor's race, if all the primary voters who didn't support incumbent 
Mayor Rhodes Conway vote for challenger Gloria Reyes, it, it may still not be enough. Is that the power of incumbency? I, I hate horse race questions, but I wanted to ask you that. Yeah, you know, I, I think if we if we look at both, if, if, if fundraising is any indication and if the, the primary results are any indication, it does seem like Mayor Rhodes-Conway still has a, a pretty strong advantage there. But, you know, surprises happen. So it's it's <laughs> it's hard to say, you know, that these races are tough because, you know, it's, it's local. You don't have a lot of polling or things to look at, you know, that, that can give you much of a sense. But it, it does seem that there's a strong incumbent advantage there. Other than uh, Paul Soglin, who was defeated by Rhodes-Conway has kind of a concrete axe to grind. How would you define the support of Gloria Reyes in this town? That's a great question. And obviously I don't cover city politics, so it's more just my observation. Um, it, but it, it does seem like it's very much kind of the Soglin centric uh, camp. You know, I, I think one interesting thing to look at is, is members of the school board who have served with her. It, it seems like that was pretty mixed. You've got kind of a like half and half of some 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 former school uh, you know colleagues on the school board are supporting her. Some are not, but yeah, it it, it does feel very Stoglin driven. Cap Times State Capitol reporter Jesse Opoyan. We always love having you on, and we look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Always happy to be here. Every Tuesday, we check in with the Daily Cardinal for the latest news from the UW-Madison campus. This week on the Cardinal Call, producer Madeline Afonso spoke with news writer Noe Goldhaber about the paper's action project for the spring semester. Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso. Last Thursday, we published our action project, The Labor Issue, covering what it's like to work in Wisconsin. I'm joined today by news writer Noe Goldhaber, who wrote about house fellowing on campus for our action project. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Maddie. Can you introduce your story, who you talked to, and why you decided to write about it? My story was about House Fellows on campus here at Madison. Um, and House Fellows are like the Madison term for RAs, just because not everyone knows that vernacular. And so basically, House Fellows have their room, board, and covered by the university, and then also got a stipend on top of that. So kind of thinking about the labor issue, I was interested in looking at like how the housing crisis has kind of changed the house fellow position just because like free provided housing is just something that is even more valuable when it's so much harder to live in Madison but then also thinking about like what does it mean to actually take on this position and like what are difficulties in being asked to like enforce certain policies especially on like such a huge party campus. Can you share a little bit on house fellows roles and their responsibilities? Sure so A big part of it is policy enforcement, which means that, like, if there's, you know, too many people in a dorm or it's too loud or X, Y, and Z, house fellows are the ones who are supposed to kind of initiate that. But I think a lot of it doesn't, it's not as, I guess, cutthroat as that. It's more, a lot of, like, the tasks are more like, hey, I'm having an issue with my roommate. Your house fellow is the person that you're going to go to. So house fellows, basically, they're just, like, the first line of UW housing inside the dorms in terms of, like, helping and providing safety in the dorms. 
What were some of the recent statistics on House Fellows UW Housing shared with you? Did any of them surprise you? Well, for one, like we know that turnover rate has been really crazy just across all professions, but in House Fellows, it's super high where we have like, you know, 75% of House Fellows deciding to stay over a year. And then at the same time, we're having huge demand for the position. So these things are kind of interacting, making it much harder to become a house fellow, um, that's what's happening. Can you explain any other potential reasons on why being a house fellow has drawn up so much interest lately? I think like a theme that came through in all my interviews with current house fellows and applicants and even people who had left the job is that financially it really seemed like the most sound decision. So I think the housing crisis obviously ties into that as like I've mentioned before. I also think that like another like facet of the housing crisis that I know I'm at Lockwood, one of the um, individuals individuals I talked to in the article discussed was that because of our housing crisis, people sign leases often late September, early October. That's a few weeks into when classes start and signing a lease in like a crazy housing market is something that's super scary. And especially like signing that contract with people you barely know is also another like added risk. So I think that there's some stability in knowing like I'm going to get a dorm on campus it's going to be provided for i'm going to be making money instead of losing money um in my living situation so i think all of those things kind of combine to make it a really in demand position in your story some house fellows kept with the job and some left can you walk us through the reasons you found for both sides i think that like among the house fellows who we talked to who have stayed in the position, they find it really rewarding. Like they ma- like making those connections with their residents. They like building community in the dorms. And it's a really essential position. Like one of the first people that you meet when you come to campus is your house fellow. And these aren't people who are like super old or figures of authority. I mean, they're a few years older than you, so they can give you the ropes a little bit. These are classes to take. These are where you should hang out on campus, that sort of thing. So I think that like, They're an approachable individual who you live with that is also a little bit of a figure of authority. So I think that that's like, people like having that responsibility for the most part and enjoy their residence and enjoy. They find it rewarding to like make the connections. And then I talked to um, one former house fellow who decided not to come back to the position. And I think that she had a really positive experience one year while she did the position where all of those reasons were true. She enjoyed her residence um, and her supervisors were really awesome. And then she transferred to a dorm that has a higher concentration of upperclassmen and single dorms. And she felt that like her role as a community builder was less necessary. So then the reward aspect of the job changed and she felt it was worth it at that point. What did current house fellow Dominic Zapia say on the pressures felt while working for UW Housing? Yeah, so I think he introduced this really interesting point that working as a house fellow is not like working another job as a student, like working at Starbucks, for example. If he gets fired from the house fellow position or let off or whatever, in the middle of the year, he has to figure out finding housing in this housing crisis, which you know, you're probably not given a lot of time to kind of figure that out and figure out that whole situation versus working another student job. It's not the place you live. And yeah, so having the dependence in your living situation based in like a form of employment, that means that the expectation to meet the requirements of your supervisor are just, you, you have to be aware, I guess, that if you were to lose the job, that that would also mean you're losing your housing. What struck you the most after talking to current, prospective, and past house fellows? I think that, like, there's, like, so many ways that we haven't thought 
like it's becoming harder and harder to live on and around campus and like there's so many like little angles and facets of that that we haven't thought about any like more in regards to that you know so I think that like house fellowing is just like one example of how like a small not a small position but like one singular position on campus can change by like making housing inaccessible but I think that there's like so many more ways that that can be changed so I think that I, I don't know I think I learned that like this huge thing like a housing crisis and unaffordable housing and that sort of thing and like the luxury apartment market that has which I know that that's been a past um daily cardinal action project but that has like so many smaller wrinkles that have like huge effects on people is there anything you learned that surprised you while reporting and writing this story I think that Dominic Zapia's quotes about, you know, kind of the positionality of being a house fellow was never something that I had thought of. I also think that I learned that he had another quote kind of about, which I don't know if it made like the final cut for the story, but about how like a lot of people have this perception that being a house fellow is really easy and you get all this taken care of, but there's kind of a lot of work and behind the scenes that goes into it. And I think Lockwood touched on that too, whereas you know, he'll, even though he has a really great experience with his residents, he'll hear other people around campus saying, oh, my house fellow does nothing. And even if you think your house fellow is doing nothing, you know, they're logging information in star res and they're, um, you know, attending meetings every week and doing so many things behind the scenes that like, even as like a current UW housing resident, I wasn't aware of at all, you know? So I think it's important to note that like, more than just like free housing and free money. Thank you so much, Noe, for coming on. Thanks for having me. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out our entire labor issue under the Action Projects tab on our website. If you want to pick up a printed copy, our About Us tab has a map of our newsstands. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call created by student journalists at UW-Madison. here which means that pretty soon baby mammals birds and other animals will make their way in droves to the dane county humane society's animal rehab center tonight on wildlife weekly feature contributor jackie sandberg breaks down everything that goes into making sure the year's babies get the care that they need Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I'm excited to announce that it's Baby Shower Week. It's the first week of April, everyone, and that means that we are getting ready for our baby season. Now, what does baby season entail? It's us telling the community about all the different baby animals that we get to see as wildlife rehabilitators because, I mean, we must admit it to ourselves, it is our favorite time of year because we get to see these really cute, fuzzy animals. But just remember, they are sick, they are injured, and a lot of times they're just orphaned, but sometimes they're not. You know, we've got lots of tips and tricks to figure out whether they are or they aren't orphaned on our website, so just putting that out first. But for those that are truly orphaned, they'll be coming to the Wildlife Center in droves here over the next couple 
couple of months. So we like to prepare ourselves and tell people about what it really takes to work with baby animals of all different species, because our Wildlife Rehabilitation Center here in Madison works with birds, reptiles, amphibians. Uh, We've got lots of different mammal species that come throughout the year. And so we definitely need a lot of supplies and each different animal is different in their needs and their housing and their enrichment requirements. So things that we are always looking for, we'll start with our ducks first. Our duck friends are going to be hatching after mom sits on her eggs for about 28 to 30 some days. And typically we'll see mallards or wood ducks to our wildlife center. And they are always going to need warmth, like heat support, and they're going to need food, like diets. Uh, Sometimes it's just enough to get donations from the community so that we can purchase those items. But we really like to have things like chick waterers. So if you've ever been on a farm or had chickens, waterers that are like galvanized or that are pretty large, we, we use all sizes from small to large. And we also have to keep our little ducklings in these very small kind of enclosures, depending on their size. But And by small, I mean it's a giant Rubbermaid tub, but for them it's probably smaller than the outside environment. Um, we usually have these large tubs that we line with things like puppy pads and newspapers, and we give them a diet that is specially formulized for uh, waterfowl, but we also use things like dried mealworms for en- enrichment. And did you know we actually grow our own mealworms at our wildlife center? Mealworms or uh, insect material in general is probably the number one product that we use throughout the year. And I kind of say that lightly as product because you can buy mealworms from different places, whether they're alive or they're dried, um, because people give them out for treats for wild birds. But for us, we have living birds that are going to need over 10,000 mealworms a day is, is our rate of going through bugs every single day in the busy season. So we actually have our own mealworm colonies that we grow. And the cycle is, you know, breeding from our mealworms that we order and we have them specially shipped, but they eventually turn into into pupa and then those pupa turn into beetles and beetles start to lay more eggs so that we can grow more mealworms. And so it's a really fun cycle, um, but it's it's not always perfect because of weather and temperature when we get shipments from different places around the US. We always need a backup in our colony of breeding worms so that we can have enough to feed the babies, especially as our influx is just kind of crazy and unpredictable throughout the weeks of the summer months. So our waterfowl species, like our wood ducks, are primarily insectivorous, so they're going to eat lots and lots of mealworms. But we also have all of our songbirds, which are hundreds of species of different songbirds. But primarily, it might be birds like robins. We've got grackles. We've got cardinals and cedar waxwings later in the fall. So mealworms are probably the bulk of the insect material we feed all of the babies. But there's lots of other things we use, like fruit. And they need a variety of dietary items. So, you know, it's raspberries, blueberries, blackberries, all of the fun natural stuff. And then if we're going to go to the veggies, we we definitely do give vegetables to certain species. Our omnivorous birds like blue jays or cardinals might nibble at a couple of, you know, chopped up different types of vegetables. Maybe, you know, ignore those just like your kids would. Yes, we do find that. But we have species like our ducks who are going to eat greens constantly. So again, back to our waterfowl, they're going to be going through cases and cases of uh, lettuce if we don't have enough 
of our natural greens that we like to have donated or picked. Typically duckweed is the best thing for our waterfowl and that grows naturally along the lakes. But we also have supplemented with things like dandelion, which has a lot of calcium in it. And then otherwise we have to purchase from the store to be able to get the enough of the green matter that they need to be successful. So uh, the bulk of that is definitely, I would say, berries, worms, and greens for those species. And then you move on to housing and cleaning them. So besides the, the tubs they live in, cages for the songbirds, we are always using paper towels and Kleenexes and dish soap and scrubbies and everything it takes to clean the animals to provide them with a really good care. And um, yep, uh, I mean, we go through just loads and loads of dishes, so bleach, and <laughs> it's it's a lot. So if you imagine 3,000 animals a year coming through a wild wildlife facility and they all poop a lot. There's a lot of mess, there's a lot of cleanup, and there's a lot of feeding that's involved. So those are some of the things that we will be promoting here, you know, in the community over the next couple of weeks to say, you know what, if you're, if you got some, you want to do a fun drive or, you know, some sort of cram the van uh, type of special event, or maybe you've got a kids group that wants to throw a birthday party and have someone bring a donation that they can collect for the wildlife center for the baby season. Super fun things. If you ever want to get involved in that way or you are interested in helping us prepare for baby season, check out our website and our Facebook page, which will be highlighting different baby animals throughout the week. And you can check us out at www.giveshelter.org or also follow us on Facebook at Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. So, uh, yep, needed things are mostly going to be items for housing the animals, feeding the animals, cleaning the animals, and we are going to start to get so many of them. Please be on the lookout for uh, sick, injured, orphaned wildlife, especially in these coming months as we have a lot of storm weather and as the temperatures begin to change. And if you have any questions, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And that's our main number, and you can leave us a message about your wildlife question or issue that you might have and need help with. So that's it for today on WRRT. Thanks for listening here about our baby shower week at Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. We are preparing for lots of baby animals and we're very excited. Thanks for listening and this has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein Wilson. Your reporter was Abigail Levins and Jessica Lindell. Special thanks to feature contributors Andy Moore at the 8 o'clock buzz, Jackie Sandberg, Madeline Afonso, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Super Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe at your favorite source for podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Up next is Spanish language news with Hanoi Sherpatio. Good night.